What I do care about is you get your Bibles. And get your Bibles and open them up. If you did not bring your Bible, um, there should be one right in front of you in the back of that pew. We've got to be a people of God's Word. All our hope is invested in it. We hold it up as eternal, infallible, inspired, breathed out Word of God. Let's put our confidence in it, every single word in it. And we're going to look at the wording this morning in Nehemiah chapter 4. And as we continue to learn how to be a people that rise up and build, how do you build spiritual walls around your homes, your hearts, your church, your community? How do you do that? Well, when you begin, you're going to receive opposition. And we're going to look at that again this morning. We're going to pick up where we stopped last week. So let me, let me begin this morning by sort of framing in a... And hopefully in a way that we can understand, there is opposition coming. If it's not here yet, it's going to be here. That's a non-negotiable, it's a guarantee. I rarely will make you a promise. I'm promising you, when you step up, when you rise up, you begin to build in God's kingdom, you will be opposed. And when you are opposed, it's going to blindside you if you're not ready for it. If you've never experienced opposition, can I be, hopefully, kindly, blunt? You're likely not building in the kingdom of God. There's an equal sign. Building in the kingdom of God equals opposition. You're going to get it. And we need to learn from Nehemiah how to respond to it. You know, there's a young couple who was very nervous because their four-year-old little boy had not yet even uttered one word. Now, I can understand this because our littlest, Andrew, took a long time before he began to speak. They took him to specialists. They took him to people who were experts in the field, but the doctors found nothing wrong with him. And then one morning at breakfast, the boy suddenly blurted out out of nowhere, Mom, the toast is burned. She didn't care. She's, she exclaims, you talked, you talked. I'm so happy, but why? Why has it taken this long? And here's his response. Well, up till now, things have been okay. <laughs> now, you know that's a courtesy laugh. That's a really stupid joke, and I get that, but it's something pastors do just to start. It's called the hook, all right? Well, up till now, things were going really well in Nehemiah's life. I mean, come on, look at what he's done. He's the second in command in Persia. He's the cupbearer to the king. Actually, he's third in command. There's the king, there's the princes, and there's the cupbearer. And the king of Persia had invested in enormous trust. This is the man that guarded his life. And he let Nehemiah go back to Jerusalem because, now you got to get this, ready? Rewrap your mind around this. Because the city was in great trouble and despair. Now, is that your life? Um, let's be honest. Is that the life of somebody that you love? The rubble, what once used to be walls are rubble. Their life is in a mess. It's in a ruin. How do you come alongside that person? To help them rebuild, how do you rebuild your own walls when they go down? And listen, our walls can drop into rubble in a conversation. If you've not experienced that, you might be doubting me. I'm telling you, I've experienced it. Your walls can go into ruin in a split second. 
And when they do, how do you rebuild? Well, in Nehemiah's life, things were going well. Yes, there was a little blip on the radar. You remember the nobles of Tekoa. They would not put their shoulders to the work. They were too high above it. But other than that, people were on the wall. The wall was going up. Look at verse 6. You're in your Bibles now. Nehemiah 4, look at verse 6. The text tells us, So we built the wall, and all the wall was joined together, meaning there were no more breaches. Yes, it's true the doors of the gates had not yet been set, but there were no more breaches in the wall, and it was joined together to half its height. So half the wall is built. I don't know what day they're on. It took 52 days to build this wall. Maybe they're on day 26. I don't know. Maybe they're on day 30. The clearing of the rubble was likely the, the most difficult beginning part. We don't know what day they're on. We know this. The wall was half built. And the enemy begins to see they're not kidding. They're pretty serious about this. Listen, when you stake your faith in Christ, friends, and you've got unsaved people around you and unsaved family, in the beginning, they're probably likely thinking, well, it's just a fad. It's just a phase. It's not going to last. If it begins to last and you begin to build your life and you begin to build your walls on Christ and you begin to build the gates in your walls and it's not going away, it is enduring, all of a sudden, you're going to start receiving a little bit different reception. And as we rebuild spiritual walls, the opposition will rise up. And they're going to begin to employ their strategies. Now listen, here's one of the things I want you to make sure you leave here with. You ready? This is where you now insert it into your mind and you say, I can't let go of this one. This one's pretty important. Our enemies strategize. Do you know that? Listen, right now, I can tell you right now, our enemy is looking to try to distract you. Some of you are likely thinking how badly Baltimore is going to beat Philly today. (laughs) And how good Dallas looked last week with the Giants. I don't know. I'm just guessing. He's going to try to try to distract you. There's going to be things your eyes are going to snap to the doors when people come in and you're going to start thinking about something other than what you're hearing. It's what our enemy does. And I'm a victim as well as you. Listen, there are times I'm preaching when thoughts go through my mind and start to unfocus my mind. And I've got to get it back. Those are enemy darts and missiles. You're going to be attacked Because he strategizes, listen to what Paul says. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against what? Look what it says. The schemes of the devil. He schemes. He strategizes. He's thinking right now what might not unfold for years. This is how good he is. If he could get a chink in your armor and drop a block in your wall, it will have devastating effects maybe years away. That's how good he is. So how alert are you to these strategies, these plots, these these schemes of the devil? Last week we saw the first one, the first strategy. The most common one is criticism. You begin to build this wall, begin to build this spiritual wall, begin investing your life. In the kingdom of God, you're likely going to first, more than anything, earlier than anything, begin to receive 
criticism. And when it comes, you learn to follow Nehemiah's example. You take it to God first. You you refuse to defend yourself against your critics. Listen, we all know how hard that is. Rhetorically, don't respond. How many of you were criticized this last week? It's an impulse of our flesh to recoil and defend our honor. But yet Nehemiah says, I will bring it to the Lord. I will spread my case before him. I will let him be my defender. And I will thirdly get back off my knees and get back to work. That's the response to the strategy of criticism. But sometimes we do that and instead of criticism dying down, it increases. And you begin to see the next strategy of Satan unfold. Now listen, let's, let's do something this morning. Let's get our minds actively engaged. We began with seeing that the enemies are going to bring criticism. They're going to try to demoralize you. They're going to try to undercut your confidence. They're going to jeer you, ridicule you, mock you. But if that doesn't work, and it it works too often, but if it doesn't work, he's going to escalate. And we can track through Nehemiah the escalation of the strategies of our enemies. The second one we're going to see is conspiracy. Look at your text. Verse 7 says this, When Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites, look at the ands, This is how you study the word of God and the Ashdodites. Got everybody now. They're all piling on. This is a gang tackle against Jerusalem. They heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed. They were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. So you got to notice now something very important. Criticism did not work because Nehemiah responded the right way. So now the strategy goes into phase two. And now opposition that had begun with Sanballat and Tobiah begins to spread. Criticism has gone to conspiracy. The battle is escalating towards open conflict. Now you remember, I gotta, I need to catch some of you up. Because you might have missed last week. You remember, Sanballat is the governor to the north. You're going to see all points of the compass. They're surrounded by enemies. You've got Sanballat, who is the gover- governor to the north over the Samaritans. He represents our greatest enemy, Satan. He hates, hates the Jews. He hates God. He does not want this city rebuilt. You've got Sambalat that represents Satan. You've got Tobiah to the east. He's the governor of the Ammonites just across the Jordan River. And he represents that close proximity of our flesh. That flesh that is still part of you, Christian brother and sister. That flesh that the gospel is what the Puritans called mortifying. Putting the stake of the cross through it. Killing it slowly, day by day. So that every day you're released from the impulse against God and the free desire to serve Him. That's the flesh wars against that. The Spirit of God, Galatians 5, is in battle against the flesh. So now you've got Sambala representing Satan. You've got Tobiah representing our flesh. And now you don't see the name Geshem like you did in chapter 2. But look at, look at what you see. You see the Arabs. Those were his people. That's the third enemy. See, Geshem, the Arab... 
controlled the south and to the west of Jerusalem. And he controlled the commerce, the trade. He didn't want Jerusalem revitalized. He didn't want them controlling their area. He wanted free trade routes. This was a threat to his money, a threat to his control. He was wealthy, he was powerful, and he hated the Jews. And you begin to see his troops, look at your text, the Arabs, the Ammonites, the Ashdodites, all of them were under his trading influence. He traded, controlled the trade with all of them. He viewed the Jews as a threat. He is the third enemy. He represents the world. Listen, the world's got us. Maybe. Be in the world. Do not be of it. He who loves the world and the things of the world, the love of the Father is not in him, John says. The world is powerful. We are to be in the world walking like strangers aliens and pilgrims but it can root your desires here it can pull your love to it instead of god it's powerful it's pervasive and you're likely not familiar maybe you are maybe you're not familiar with the ashdodites i can barely say the name but you'll understand who they are when i remind you that they're probably at this point in history the the strongest of the five major cities of the Philistine people. You remember the Philistines? They sort of seem to have dropped off the map of the Old Testament by this point. Remember they were in their height of power when Saul was the king of Israel, when David, who broke their backs, was the king of Israel. When the Philistines captured the Ark of God, 1 Samuel 5, they brought it from Ebenezer, look where they took it, to Ashdod. It was west of Jerusalem, not very far, right on the Mediterranean coast, a little bit south. Ashdod was the city of the Philistines. It's their most powerful city. The Ashdodites are the warring people of the Philistines who hate God's people. They always have. And now emboldened by the rest of the enemies of God, they too rise up against the Jews. And now you've got all four points of the compass, north, east, south, and west. They are literally surrounded by their enemies. And look what it says in the text. They're very angry, and here it is, they all plotted together. That word plotted means conspired. It's a Hebrew word. Listen, you got to get this. It means they bound or tied themselves together in league. Satan, flesh, and world friends, you've got to know this. They have made a pact. They have made a treaty. They have made a league. They are our enemies. They are in opposition to us. There is no friction between them. They work marvelously together, always to bring the people of God to ruin at their faith. Isn't it amazing how easily the enemies of God work together and how difficult it is to get churches to do the same. And yet it's one of the three principles. If we're ever going to rebuild the spiritual wall around the east end of the Lehigh Valley, we've got to do more than mobilize you to serve. We've got to do more than develop leaders to get on the wall and to manage. We've got to link arms and grab hands of Christ-centered churches who exalt Christ and preach the word. We've got to do that all around east end. We're not the only ones. 
Yeah, overwhelming opposition on all sides. Listen, this conspiracy where they all plot together, it is one of Satan's major strategies to stop us from rebuilding our lives. You know, it's not uncommon. When I begin counseling married couples, that I warn them. I I, I think I always do this, actually. I tell them before they leave, it's going to get better. It's going to get worse before it gets better. I'm, I'm telling you it's going to. And I have a fly buzzing around me. Can you see that? That's a demon. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> just kidding. I'm not one of those pastors. Wow, Ellen's leaving. I'm sorry, Ellen. <laughs> I always tell them it's going to get worse before it gets better. Because your enemy, when you begin to rebuild, is going to come at you in an effort to try to get you to stop building. You ever fallen into poor money management and the financial ruin that results from that? And it seems like when you try to rebuild and you determine to get rid of credit cards, determined to no longer live in debt because the Bible says debt is slavery, that you begin to walk in financial godly principles of stewardship. You begin to do that and all of a sudden your car breaks, your hot water heater goes, everything seems to go. Listen, there is no accident in this. You recommit your walk with Christ and family members pull together to oppose you and to remind you that that's not the way you ought to go. Listen, we, we warn board members every year, especially elders, whom you nominate. We warn them, you come on the board, expect attack. And it almost always happens. It might be increased pressure on your children and rebellion. It might be health issues that you never had before. All of a sudden you begin to struggle with them. It might be stressors at work that are competing with your ability to give and lead at church. Listen, it's going to come. We warn people, you've got to know the enemy hates it when you build. And temptations, they get stronger, lives get busier, the enemy becomes bolder when we get on that wall and we begin to rebuild our lives. Listen, they used to control you. You know that, right? All three enemies used to control every one of us before Christ. That's what Paul says. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you, in once you, in which you once walked. That's the flesh. Following the course of this world, you know that one, following the prince of the power of the air. You've got Samballat, Tobiah, and Geshem the Arab. They're all in this picture. The gospel has rescued you from them. But if conspiracy doesn't work, criticism didn't work, you've responded in the way Nehemiah, conspiracy's not doing the trick. Listen, they're going to go to the next strategy. And you see it right in our same text. Look at verse 8. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem. And here it is. And to cause confusion in it. Confusion's the third. Your text might say cause a disturbance in it. Well, verse 11, if you skip down, it's going to show us where the enemies want to go. Look what it says. They're going to come among them and kill them. That's what they're going to try to do. It's not there yet. They're not there yet. They will be. But in verse 8, their strategy is to come together to fight and to cause disturbance. The word really is confusion in the city. You know what that word means in the Hebrew? It's the strategy. Listen, this is so important. 
It's the strategy of the enemy where he tries to put error and wrong thinking in your mind. That's what that word means. Because if he could put error into your thinking, he could get you to distort, distort truth with lies and get you to believe it. Then he can get you to wander off wisdom and into foolishness where you are now susceptible and vulnerable to him. See, Satan likes to twist words. He likes to pervert truth with lies and it leads us astray from the biblical thinking. Wrong thinking produces wrong living. Wrong thinking produces wrong living. If you've got a lie that is laced through your mind, it will eventually produce wrong living. And their enemies were plotting how to create this confusion, this disturbance that will stop work. Here comes this creeping mental fog bank right into Jerusalem. By the way, this wasn't the first time you see this from Satan. Do you remember in Genesis 3 where Satan said to Eve, did God actually say, here comes the fog. Get ready. Listen, people of God, you can see fog coming when you understand his strategies. You can watch it creep towards you. Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? The mist is blowing through her mind. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. When it's thick enough to where it can mask his strategy, he will then go right straight to a lie and undermine truth. Do you see what's happening? Criticism didn't work. The enemies escalate to conspiracy. Conspiracy is not doing its job. They're still building. They begin to bring in and drift in a fog bank of confusion. Let's introduce distortion. Let's introduce lies. Because if we can get them to believe the lies, they're going to stop rebuilding. The great deceiver... Loves to create confusion. You're going to sit back there the whole time and I'm going to feel terrible. Ellen Harrison. I am going to feel horrible. Your poor husband is so alone down here. But now that I've drawn even more attention to you and you feel even worse. You know, I really did that for a reason because they are now new grandparents and it is amazing. And if you understand the story of what they've gone through with their daughter and the pain that they've gone through and, they, and the God-ordained naming of this little girl, Naomi, the pleasantness of God, you will revel in the glory of God. So you make sure you hear about that from Paul and Ellen. So here's the great deceiver. He's creating confusion in them, tempting them to sin. Now listen, Christian brothers and sisters, you can be sure our enemies are doing the same to, to us. And before we know it, our determination and our courage are wobbling and a fog of confusion begins to creep into our thinking. And, and all of a sudden, I can picture Jerusalem thinking like this. Everyone around us is telling us to stop. We're going to be killed if we keep on building. It's not a very good wall anyway. Don't you remember Babylon's wall? 90 feet thick, 90 feet high, ours, 9 feet. That's what archaeology has discovered. Who's this Nehemiah? Ever since Nehemiah has come on the scene, we've had nothing but opposition, nothing but anger. Our lives are in trouble. See, that's the fog bank. And that's what it begins to do is it begins to erode your confidence, begins to undermine 
your boldness in Christ. And it begins to look like this today. And I've got somebody that just said it to me this last week. I'm never going to defeat this sin. I will never defeat this sin. I might as well just quit trying. That's confusion. That's fog bank thinking. That's the strategy of your enemy creeping in there with overwhelming force. And it goes like this. If God was really good, then all these bad things would not be happening to me. Do you hear the erosion of your faith? That's when the mists of the lies of Satan begin to blow in there. Life was easier when I didn't fight against sin. It was simpler before I turned back to Christ. I hear these things. And I'm alert to them. I know what the enemy's doing. We need to be alert because he does a lot more than those three examples. And when that fog of confusion creeps into our minds... We've got to respond the way that Nehemiah led the Jews to respond. And look at verse 9. We prayed to our God and set a guard as a precaution against them day and night. We've seen the strategies. Now criticism escalates to conspiracy, escalates to confusion. What should we do? Well, Nehemiah shows us the first one. Number one, we pray together. We pray together. Again, this is the first response of Nehemiah to the escalating attack of the enemy. It's to go to God. It's to go to the throne of mercy. How often do you pray? I mean, let's, let's be real with this for a second. I don't mean your flare prayers when you're in trouble. And that's important. And Nehemiah did one in chapter 2. There's a place for that. How often do you sit before the throne of mercy and bask in the presence of God, laying out your case before Him and leaving it there and getting up and going back to faithful living? See, praying is not just speaking to God. Praying is listening to God. Praying is letting the Spirit of God shift our hearts, shift our thinking, clear the fog, blow away the confusion. Prayer does exactly that. But this time, Nehemiah doesn't go alone. He did the first time. Look at this text. We Prayed to our God. You've got to get the pronouns. They're important. You know, I, I once preached a sermon on the pronoun our. Sort of received a bit of a lighthearted ribbing. It was part of the Lord's Prayer. This poem is all about the Lord's Prayer. It underscores the power of the word our. It says you cannot pray the Lord's Prayer and even once say I. You cannot say the Lord's Prayer and even once say my nor can you pray the Lord's Prayer and not pray for another. For when you ask for daily bread, you must include your brother. For others are included in each and every plea from the beginning to the end and never once says me. That's the power of the pronoun our. And you go to God together. You don't go alone. The confusion, you can't see the confusion. Jeremiah 17, 9, our minds, our hearts, the Hebrew word for heart means your mind, your thinking, your emotions, and your will. If you look at it like a train, the wills, the tracks, the, the caboose at the ends, your emotions, and the locomotive that's pulling it is the mind. If the, the emotions get in front of the mind, you're going to have a train wreck. 
And confusion seeks to bring emotions to the front to drive the train. And it will always deviate your will into wrong living. Praying before God with other people takes Jeremiah 17 that your heart is deceptive. It is wicked and it brings the light of clarity. You pray together. But we're Americans, aren't we? We're proud to be individuals. But that's not covenantal theology, and that's not the Word of God. Because the Word of God says there is no place for the island. There is no place for solitary living. He shows you that in Ecclesiastes. There was a man who lived in solitary existence, came to the end of his life and was in ruin and said, why did I toil for myself? And he showed you a better way. A cord of two or three strands will not be easily broken. You will stay warm at night. In other words, your ardor, your love, your fervency for Christ will be kindled when you've got Christians in your life that are speaking truth into you. We prayed to our God. Why we? Because listen, our enemy hates us. Can I be honest with you? You and neither am I are much of a threat to the enemy. Not on our own. I am certainly not. I am weak as anybody. But we together are formidable. We prayed to our God, praying together as a church or as a group of brothers and sisters forms this unity. Listen, if you're finding that you cannot progress deeper in your spiritual life, the answer is almost always because you're not living in context of community. And this is why we do life group ministry. This is why we're asking everybody, get into a life group. Live life on life. You will go further in Christ than you ever could have by yourself. But we've seen this before, so I want to move on to the second response and spend a little bit more time on it. Look what they did. They set a guard. First they prayed together, then they set a guard. They didn't stay on their knees, they got up. And when they got up, they set a guard as a protection, verse 9, against them day and night. Remember when Nehemiah responded to criticism, he prayed, he left it with God, he got up and went back to work. Now conspiracy has grown, now confusion has drifted in against the people of God. Now they go to prayer and then they get up and they set a guard, look what it says, day and night. You know what that word set means in the Hebrew? It means to get up and take a stand and pound your flag of the gospel in. It means to get up, take your stand and take the gospel and pound it right down in that spot. That's what it means to set a guard. And again, we begin to see the heart of Nehemiah. We get to see the relationship between faith and and works, you got faith that trusts God. You prayed, they prayed together, that's faith. But listen, you don't just stay on your knees. You've got to give evidence to your faith or it's dead. You might trust God to keep you safe at night, but parents, listen, don't you lock your doors. Locking your doors, a symptom of weak faith? You use your brain, you use wisdom. If you've got a car veering out of control and you're on the sidewalk, you don't just pray and say, God, would you let the car avoid me? You move. (laughs) 
faith evidences itself in remarkably wise, simple ways. If God is showing you in prayer that you've got a vulnerable spot in your wall, you get out of prayer, you take the gospel and you set it like a flag right there to keep a guard. And if the fog of uncertainty is creeping in and it's eroding your confidence in God and His Word, then you get up off of prayer, you get, off, get up off your knees, and you set a guard. Because our enemies, friends, they work around the clock. Day and night you set these guards. They don't take time off. You might be more susceptible to temptation or irritability late at night or maybe even early in the morning. Listen, when you're in prayer, God will speak this to you. He will show you where your wall is most vulnerable. And when he shows you, what he's expecting you to do is get up off your knees and set a flag right there and say, this is where I'm weak, this is where I've got to set a guard. Haven't you ever noticed, friends, I mean, let's, let's be utterly honest. Haven't you ever noticed some of the worst family arguments are just when you're getting ready to go to church? Why is that? Do you not see that that is the working of our enemy? It's a little hard to walk through these doors with praise on your lips and thankfulness in your heart when you're still stewing about what happened that morning. And our enemy knows this. You might be most vulnerable to sin. You might be most susceptible to that fog bank of confusion. Listen, right after you complete a major project or research paper. That is astoundingly an opportunity for the enemy. You've worked, you've worked, and you've worked, and now you've done, and now you get to deserve to relax. You deserve good things happening to you. And your enemy sees it. He knew it was coming. This is the pattern in your life. He's going to bring the fog bank, and he's going to bring temptation. And more often than not, you're going to fall. How do I know that? You know... I've learned that the time in my life that it seems I am most susceptible to temptation. How ironic is this? It's Sunday afternoons. You know, I've worked all week on these sermons. I've put them together. I've done a lot of other things going on, but I've finally finished it, usually Saturday morning. I preach it Saturday night two times on Sunday morning and I get home and while I'm driving home, if I haven't set my guard, if I haven't pounded the gospel to kill my flesh, what's going through me is I deserve my castle and my throne and all my family to be my servants. And... Regardless of how well my wife serves me, it's not her place to be my slave. It's my place to serve, and I don't always do that very well. And it is ironic how I get home on Sunday afternoons. I'm tired. I'm feeling like I deserve a break today, and I don't really want a Snickers. I want everybody to be quiet and give me the afternoon that I want, and my Cowboys to win. (laughs) Our enemies are exploiters. Listen, know that. They are opportunists, and they're good at it. They're very good at it. So you set a guard day and night. So let's get real. Are you ready? Do you, do you struggle with spending? Are you in a lot of debt? If 
you are, you know, you know why Scripture says it's like being a slave. If you're in debt, your spending is out of control, listen, then get down on your knees and pray and let God show you that part of your wall that is being breached. You get up and you set a guard. You live in accountability. You stop carrying your credit cards. You set a guard. You pray for his help. You get up, you live by his word, and you bring people into your life to help. You struggle with impurity? Men, look at me. Do you struggle with impurity? You have to set a guard. Move your computer out of the privacy of your rooms. Get it in the public room of your house. Turn it so everybody can see it. Bring accountability. Put X3 Watch or whatever you want to use on your computer. Invite people into your life. You set a guard. You pound the gospel like a flag and you invite people in. And then you be honest with them. You know, we're really good at admitting just enough sin that it actually makes us look noble. And we all know how to do this. Be gut-wrenching. You've got a dark room in your heart. Open the door and say, listen, you've got to look at this because it's not good. And I need your help. That's how you set a guard. You struggle with drinking. We've got several people in our church that do. That do. You know those conference trips. You know those business dinners will make you fall. The privacy of your hotel room, the anonymity of these conferences. It's where a lot of Christians are defeated. You've got to call people and say, listen, I'm on a trip. You need to call me. You've got to call me at 8 o'clock before I go out to eat with my business partners and then call me at 11 o'clock when I get back. I cannot fall this time. You've been on your knees. You're praying, Lord, please help me. I'm getting ready to go on this trip. You know I'm weak. You know the enemy sees where I am weak, where my wall is down. I've got to get help. And God's going to tell you, well, listen, get off, the, get off your knees. I'll be there. I'm going to work in you with the Spirit of God. But you do what I've been telling you to do. Get your guard in place and set it day and night. Well, you might say, I've been praying about this struggle of mine and it's not going away. It's probably because you're praying a lot, but you're not setting a guard. Do you have a gossiping tongue? Nobody ever really believes they do. But if you hear the divine echo of God surreptitiously, slyly, little innocuous statements from your friends saying, I think that's gossip. Well, then maybe you need to listen to God and not your own deceptive heart, Jeremiah 17, 9. Because gossip is lethal to a community. If you have a complaining spirit, I had one time years ago, I was complaining and complaining. And finally, an unsaved friend says to me, boy, for a Christian, you sure do complain a lot. Just like that. I never forgot it. Never. Do you have a critical attitude? Criticism is the first strategy of the devil. It's going to be You can be an ally with that. Constructive criticism is not what I'm speaking about. Unconstructive criticism, which seeks to demean and ridicule and jeer. If that's what you're doing, you're partnering and allying with our enemies. It's got to go. You set a guard. You're struggling with pride. I rode a mountain bike this last week with a man that told me, you know what? I struggle with pride. I'm fiercely competitive. 
God's been showing him in prayer where his wall is down. Now he's got to set the guard. He's got to bring people in and help him see the roots of these, this pride and get it out of his life. You struggle resentment, bitterness. Well, set a guard and take God's daily grace. It's the scissors that cuts the vine of bitterness and you begin to learn to forgive. You get these guards in place day and night, meaning you leave no opportunity for the devil. Listen, are you struggling with eating, with food, obsessive calorie control? This is such a problem in our culture. And it hides. Pray for God's help. Get up, set a guard. You're wearing long sleeves because you know you're scratching and you don't want the questions. You're cutting on your thighs below your pants. Listen, it's an epidemic. I met with somebody yesterday doing this. It will not go away. You can pray and pray and pray. I'm telling you as a counselor, it won't go away. You get up out of prayer with God's help and you set a guard. You invite people in to your life. And it's how we burn off these fogs of uncertainty, that confusion that dogs our mind. And the one constant guard that everybody has to set, it must be in place day and night, is the Word of God. It renews our minds, it transforms us, makes us alert to the enemy's lies. You set a guard over who you're going to be a close friend with. He who is wise, Proverbs says, will be with the wise, but a companion of fools will suffer harm. Bad company corrupts good morals, Proverbs says. Listen, if you're going to ally closely with those who oppose God, it will affect you. It's undeniable. You set a guard over who you're going to date. You think unequally yoking yourself only is in marriage? It even trickles into who you bond your emotions with. You set a guard over who you're going to partner in business. There's many Christians that have gone down in a wall of rubble because they've partnered with the wrong people who oppose God. Sooner or later, it will not sustain itself. And God warns us not to do it. So you set a guard You set a guard against complacency in the church. You set a guard against the creeping creeping flow of liberalism where pastors give you their token verse and then they wax philosophically for the next 30 minutes. That can't happen here. Well, it can't happen here, but we can't let it happen here. We've got to set a guard. And somebody here might be saying, Well, that's really good advice for the younger, but I'm older. Really? Listen, do you know that almost every single person that fell into sin in Scripture was older? Study your word. See where I'm wrong. That's frightening. You know what that means, older people among us? It means you're not out of range of the devil's arrows until you are in the embrace of Christ. In eternity. You want to finish end? You want to finish and end well? You want to finish and hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant? Then listen, you pray to our God and you set a guard as a protection against them day and night. Why? Because our enemies are conspiring against us and they're looking to create confusion. I had an email this last week from a lady in her church. 
I'm telling you, I am so encouraged of what so many of you are doing in response to this series. She emails me and says, I've, I've been studying along with you, Nehemiah's life, and I'm sensing, I'm praying, I'm sensing God leading me to start a Bible study in my group. I've got a lot of neighbors that live on my street, a lot of ladies that don't work during the day, and so I've been sending out invites to them in their mailboxes and asking, would they like to be in a Bible study that I will lead? She's about to start it. She was here last night. I reminded her, listen, your enemy hates this. Because there wasn't a wall. There wasn't a spiritual wall on your, on your street. And now you're beginning to build it. So listen, there's going to be criticism. They're going to think you're maybe not that good of a Bible study leader. That maybe your personality is odd. Whatever they're going to come up with, it will be ridiculing, it will be jeering, it will be mocking, it will be criticism. It's meant to demoralize you, to get you to quit. But if it doesn't work because you've gotten on your knees and you spread it out before the Lord and you refuse to defend yourself and you get back to work and you lead your Bible study, if that didn't work, listen, he's going to bring conspiracy and they're going to start talking and they're going to start gossiping about you. And they're going to start reminding you of the times that you and your husband could be heard fighting outside. Who are you to lead us in a Bible study? And if the conspiracy doesn't get you to stop, then listen, there's going to be a fog bank of uncertainty that's going to creep into your mind. It's going to be that distorted bag of truth and lies, and it's going to be a mist in your mind, and it's going to get you to start doubting, did God really ask me to do this, or was this just me wanting to do it? Because I'm not really seeing any fruit from this. Maybe I should just quit. That's what he does. That's what our enemies do. So get on your knees. Get people to pray with you. You pray together for that wall to be built. And then you get off your knees. You go back to work setting a guard. I'm going to finish this wall by God's grace. And we'll let him bring the fruit. Amen. Lord, thank you for Nehemiah. Thank you for what we're learning. Thank you for your patience with us. Lord, thank you that you know how weak we all are. And you have taught us clearly in your word how to live. You've taught us how to resist the devil and he will flee. You've taught us how to put a guard of peace over our hearts. You told told us how to keep our eyes on you so that we do not stumble. Lord, help us to set a guard. Help us to stake the gospel deeply right where the weakest part of our walls are and invite some trusted friends to share our lives, to hold our hands up strong. Lord, we ask for your help in this. Help us as we continue to learn what our enemy is going to try to do and as we continue to see the right response of all of God's people. Give us wisdom. Give us the ability to live this by your grace. And that we ask in the name of Jesus. Amen.